This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to another episode of Comparative Media Insights. Tonight we have Angela Dalianis with us. Uh, Angela is Associate Professor of Cinema and Cultural Studies at, if I can say this properly, Melbourne <laughs> University down under. Um, she specializes in Hollywood cinema, digital media, and the convergence of popular forms such as film, computer games, comic books, and theme park spaces. Uh, she works both transhistorically and obviously in a transmedial way and obviously engages with popular media as well as more traditional forms. Um, and she's especially interested in the Baroque dimensions of contemporary culture. And her book that she put out with MIT Press on the Baroque, the Neo-Baroque, has been a really a, a game changer in terms of some of the language we use for uh, discussing trends in media. I want to give you a sense of her current research because it says a lot about where where she's located. She's got a couple of book projects, one forthcoming um, soon, any day now, Spectopolis, Theme Park Cultures, another book on media interfaces in the works, another called Children of Frankenstein, Science Fiction, Automata, and the Emergence of Robot Realities, a book she's doing with Jim Collins at Notre Dame called Curatorial Culture, and a research project she's involved in called the Hispanic Baroque, Complexity in the First Atlantic Culture. Um, books that she has written already and that you can check out if you'd like. Uh, the comic book Superhero, Superheroes from Hercules to Superman, and we share, I'm a real Batman fan, so this is, uh, we share a common space there. The Neo Baroque book that I just mentioned, and Stars in Our Eyes, uh, the star phenomenon in the contemporary era. So without further ado, Angela. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, I thought I'd start just by letting you know that this talk is based on two of those book projects. One is the Spectopolis book, which is um, looking at the history of theme parks, what influenced theme parks. So I look at amusement parks, world expositions, and a whole variety of other things from leisure gardens to, um, to uh, automata. Uh, and look at the way the theme park has in turn influenced contemporary um, entertainment spaces and our, our own sort of urban environment. And the second book that I, I draw on is the, the project I'm co-writing with Jim Collins from the University of Notre Dame, that's how you pronounce it? <laughs> it's called Curatorial Culture and in that book we're looking at the way um, curating and collecting and the whole concept of, of the traditional function of the museum has changed as a result of conglomeration and digital culture. So I've collapsed the two and I hope um, it makes sense. If it doesn't, you can ask me questions later. Emerging in the mid 20th century when Disneyland opened its doors in 1955, the theme park created the ultimate in illusionistic effects that collapsed the screen frame by extending the fictional world of Disney animation into the social sphere. In researching the design for Disneyland and how its spaces um, would reach out to its, its participants, Walt Disney learned many lessons from the urban practices of early European traditions, including Lenotre's axial designs for Louis XIV Versailles um, residence and gardens. 
But whereas the vast landscape and buildings of Versailles stood as monuments to the grandeur of the aristocratic patron, King Louis XIV, the Sun King, in the 20th century, Disneyland stood as monument to the nascent Disney Corporation and the masses who navigated its world. Here, participants no longer gazed upon or heard fantastic um, fictional creations on screen, like those in Snow White, the, the movie, the animated movie. Now they could enter the illusion and become part of the effect. And here you see an image from Snow White's um, Scary Adventures at Disneyland, one of the first rides in the park. Media boundaries became porous as art, architecture, painting, sculpture, hydraulics, robotics, music and theatre united to create a fantastic cityscape the participants could physically enter and truly immerse themselves in. Disneyland and the theme parks that followed, um, for example, Universal Studios parks, Warner's, Disney Sea, and here is an example of uh, the Jurassic Park ride and experience at Universal in um, the Islands of Adventure in Florida, all aimed to produce a networked environment that conjures wondrous spaces that both perform for an audience and, a and for which are for performing within. Now, I'm interested particularly in these spaces as neo-Baroque places of performance, though I'm not as concerned with the neo-Baroque um, in terms of defining it today, so I'll, I'll let that one go, and theatricality. For today's purposes, however, I'll be looking not at the theme park, but I want to turn instead, firstly, to one of the most important forms that impacted on the theme park, something that's often neglected, the movie palace of the late 1910s to 30s, and then turn to the main focus of this talk, uh, to an emerging urban space that's typified by designs known as the urban entertainment um, destinations, which are very much driven by the current experience economy, which I'll come back to later, and which have dominated over the last two decades, which expanded the notion of the theme park and picture palaces before it by shifting the sense for theatrical into the wider social realm. And in particular, I want to look at Las Vegas as a city that represents this performativity to the max. In focusing on these examples, I want to explore what the architect S. Charles Lee, who designed over 400 picture palaces, recognised about the rationale that drove the new cinemas. Namely, that the show wasn't limited to the film that was being projected on the screen. Rather, the show now started on the sidewalk and was experienced through and in the themed fantasy scapes and spilled beyond the screen to enter the urban sphere. And in looking at how these these this was conveyed during the Picture Palace era and later in contemporary Vegas, I want to especially explore how film and entertainment culture have appropriated tropes and modes of engagement which are taken from pre-20th century high culture traditions associated with the church and with aristocracy. But whereas palaces, theatrical spectacles, churches and piazzas stood as monuments to the grandeur of their aristocratic patrons, in the 20th and 21st century in the wake of Disney, it's, now, it's um, now the entertainment environments that stand as a monument to the corporate conglomerates like Universal, MGM and the Disney Corporation and also the masses who inhabit these worlds. In the United States, it was the young film industry that began a love affair with aristocratic flair and monumentality. Aside from the mise-en-scene of grand Hollywood epics like Intolerance by Griffith, in released in 1926, and Queen Kelly, uh, directed by von Stroheim, 1928, the sets and productions began to spill into the space of Los Angeles. Aside from the new Hollywood homes of the movie moguls and film stars, which explicitly imitated the palaces of European aristocrats and monarchs of past centuries, it was the emergence of the new movie palaces... 
<laughs> sure, sure, sure. Two monarchs were now the movie stars and moguls, and they asserted their power and ethereal-like aura through a visual splendour evident not only in their palatial abodes, but in the public spaces of worship that were created for the audiences. As was understood by S. Charles Lee and many of the movie palace architects and entrepreneurs, to go to the movies meant to invest in an entirely immersive experience. Here, the new religion, here was the new religion, sorry, spaces that evoked alternate and fantastic realities that were offered both by film technology and by its new palaces for the people who consumed their fictional worlds. These were places of rapture and intensity where audiences could leave the ordinary behind them. The previous theatres, piazzas, churches and palaces that were designed for the exuberant performances arranged for aristocrats, royalty and clerics, and which relied on rich sensory effects to delight their audiences, were transformed into palaces and churches for the masses in the early 20th century. And the themes of religion and empowerment that were so familiar to earlier centuries made a revamped return. Capped by huge electric signs that radiated their titles like giant beacons, the picture, palace, picture palaces became symbols of a new cosmopolitan and consumer confidence and sophistication. And key architects who specialised and were commissioned um, to design these new palaces for large change, such as uh, Paramount Lowe's Fox, included John Eberson, Rap and Rap, Thomas Lamb and Charles Lee. And here you see Paramount, um, which was on Times Square, and ironically today that's been transformed into the Hard Rock Cafe, the ultimate in experience economy um, architecture. And the Fox, which is, has recently been renovated in Detroit. I don't know if anyone's ever been to the, the Fox in Detroit. Totally breathtaking. It's just phenomenal. I think it's a 5,000-seater cinema that's now used for theat theatrical productions. The architect, uh, just take one example, the architect John Eberson created atmospheric theatres that included the Chicago Paradise Theatre, which you see here. And in the mid-1920s, he devised the stars and clouds formula. Here, he simulated outdoor settings and the conventional seating space of the auditorium seemed to open up to the sky, which was lit by pinpoint starlights above. Um, now, this denial of the materiality of the ceiling isn't only a strategy familiar to Baroque artists of the 17th and 18th centuries, but it's become one of the hallmarks of, of uh, complexes like Caesar's Palace, Planet Hollywood, Paris and the Venetian in um, Vegas, as I'll, I'll get to. Uh, this is the um, a theatre in, t in Tampa in Florida. By appropriating high culture and shifting their traditional function and subject, many proclaimed that they'd created democratic spaces of leisure. And John Eberson, the architect, said the following. Here we find ourselves today creating and building super cinemas of enormous capacities excelling in splendour, in luxury and in furnishings of the most palatial homes of princes and crowned kings for and on behalf of His Excellency the American Citizen. Of course, there were these sort of cinemas in Australia and England too and various other places, and Japan actually. An advert in um, San Francisco call from dated June 30th, 1929, stated the following about the Fox Cinema in San Francisco, which was um, demolished in 1963. There's another snip of it. What what have you heard about the new Fox Theatre? Whatever you've heard, there is a thousand times more to find within its doors. As you pass through the, giant the great entrance into the vast foyer of magnificence, you feel like ex exclaiming, is this a theatre or the palace of a king? And it continued, all worries vanish and life becomes a dream of dazzling beauty, glorious colours, intoxicating music and motion pictures that make the minutes fly like seconds. Wander through these spacious halls and beautiful lounges. 
Listen to the music in the grand hall where your feet rest in luxury upon rugs as lovely as rare museum fabrics. King Louis XVI enjoyed, enjoyed no finer and it's yours for today, for tomorrow, next week. Come, be king for a day. It was the entrepreneur Samuel L. Rothfell, who was better known as Roxy, who would have a dramatic impact on the artifice of theatre design. At the time of its opening in 1927, the Roxy Theatre in New York, which was a 6,000-seater, was hailed in this ad as the Cathedral of Motion Pictures. And again in 1918, um, in an advertisement for the Rivoli, the ad read, the grandest, the most magnificent temple ever erected to the cinema god. The sacred and wondrous imagery and terminology that had been integral to experiences of Renaissance and Baroque churches had returned. Whether palaces or cathedrals, and often these picture palaces actually collapse both into one another um, in terms of iconography and intent, these were the new temples of entertainment. And above all, they spoke directly to their people through the seduction of the senses. A state that Deleuze, sorry, that's the only time I'll mention his name, I swear, argues is integral to the Baroque aesthetic. The illusions produced in these spaces would try to engage as many of the senses as possible in their attempts to captivate their audiences. And Roxy, um, in one of the, the magazines I found that Roxy had actually trialled an atomizer that, uh, that emitted smells. So when you know, um, pastoral scenes were shown, the scent of grass appeared in the cinema. It didn't take off, but it's interesting that he did try that. The logic was very much one of a film within a film or a Baroque theatre of the world whereby the film goer was embraced by fantastic spaces on many sensory levels, both from within and from beyond the screen. The Los Angeles theatre was S. Charles Lee's literal Versailles in miniature. It opened in uh, January 30th, 1931, complete with 2,200 seats. It belongs to Lee's, um, it's, it was called his motion picture Baroque period. So it's quite a literal sort of allusion to the Baroque here. The theatre included electric indicators to monitor available seats, blue floor lights to guide patrons, soundproof crying rooms for babies, and my favourite, la ladies' rooms had 16 private compartments with periscope-like um, contraptions that allowed the women to see what, was, what they were missing out on on the big screen. <laughs> the men too bad. <laughs> men no such luxury. Through the spectacle of the films and their architectural interiors and exteriors, the audience was invited to share a quasi-mystical experience that made them marvel at the miracles that Hollywood could conjure. Here was an experience that was truly magical, and yet the audience was never allowed to forget that these wondrous structures that revisited past architectural styles were also the products of the latest in cutting-edge technology and engineering. Relying on another Baroque trait, these enormous structures were incredible virtuoso feats of modern engineering and high-end technology that mirrored the technological wizardry of the films they were built to present. In addition to their massive steel structures, they were contemporary showcases for the possibilities of electricity. Thousands of lights lit the, lit the building exteriors, making the buildings look like otherworldly places that would transport visitors beyond the everyday. On the interior, thousands of lights provided sophisticated effects and mood lighting. Um, for example, one of the Warner Brothers cinemas had over 25,000 light contacts in it. And electricity also powered the new electric lifts and massive refrigerator plants that provided new innovations in air conditioning um, in the cinemas. Now you can see where I'm going to go with this one. The Great Depression that followed no longer made these large-scale palaces and cathedrals fe um, feasible. 
thousands closed and um, more, more of them were demolished in the 60s and 70s to make way for parking lots and shopping malls um, and a new um, alternate kind of cinematic experience. And here in this sort of iconic photo, you see the, the um, screen goddess Gloria Swanson uh, amidst the ruins of the Fox Cinema, which was demolished in, the Roxy Cinema, sorry, demolished in 1960. But while they lasted, these cathedrals of the people created and maintained a deceptive perception that weaved the audience, even if briefly, into their high culture worlds. The movie palace reached its peak in popularity in the late 1920s, and entertainment dreamscapes on this scale wouldn't really be seen again until the 1950s with the introduction of Disneyland onto the landscape of California. Yet even then, with the exception of the princess castles and the Disney parks, the adaptation of palatial, religious and grand culture imagery from a time gone by would only really make a comeback in the city of Las Vegas in the 1990s. Now, on one of my many trips to Las Vegas, I always visit this place. Displayed before me is the breathtaking site of Lake Como, not the one in Italy, but the artificially created lake that came into being at the command of Steve Wynn, famous Las Vegas millionaire and casino owner. In the backdrop, the Bellagio Hotel Casino stands majestically like a grand high-rise palazzo, deliberately recalling the villas Carlotta, Melzi and Cerbelloni, and you see two of those up the top there, the originals, uh, all of which find their home in the real Bellagio in northern Italy. Inside the Bellagio, the Hotel Casino, a seasonal arrangement of flora of all varieties bombard the viewer's senses with evocative scents and visuals that attempt to capture those found in aristocratic gardens throughout the Como district. Now taking this display of nature one step further, 2,000 square feet of lobby ceiling of the Bellagio showcases the Fiori di Como, which comprises thousands of hand-blown hand -blown flowers created by Dale Chihuly, which are really gross, I've got to say, and you see them down there. And apparently Steve Wynn, it, it was much simpler, and Steve Wynn kept saying, I want more colour, and he just kept adding more hand-blown glass. <laughs> <laughs> However, it's at the street level that the most sensational display occurs. Every half hour, the calm waters of the enormous artificial lake come to life, presenting the spectator with an audiovisual feast that could only take place on, on this scale in Las Vegas, or more specifically on the Vegas Strip. It probably um, runs for about four blocks, normal blocks, the, the length of it. Here, a network of underwater pipes comprising over 1,200 nozzles and over 4,500 lights, as well as smoke machines, are responsible for the performance that is the Fountains of Bellagio. And again here, in this sort of um, display, entertainment display of fountains, uh, this goes back to earlier aristocratic traditions of, of villa designs and garden displays of fountains. Created by wet design, the fountains dance to the, meticul the meticulously choreographed routines that match the rhythms of tunes like Luck Be a Lady, Frank Sinatra, Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini by Rachmaninoff, Singing in the Rain by Gene Kelly, and two songs that never fail to make me blubber like a baby, Conte Partiro by Andrea Bocelli, and Ecstasy of Gold, um, the Morricone theme to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. That one gets me right in here. During these performances, hundreds flock around the lake, reveling at the spectacle of still water as it begins to magically take on a life of its own, spurting and swaying left and right, back and forth, up and down in perfect unison with the rhythms of music that erupt from the speakers that surround the lake. And I thought I'd give you an idea. Um, that's the Garden of Versailles, by the way, for an early photo 
Versailles fountains, and that's the Bellagio up top. This is um, one of the performances, theme of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the musical. That, that's like hundreds of feet high. It's just amazing. It's really hard to describe the feeling that you actually get standing at the front. Yeah. Can I just ask you to clarify the audio perspective of that? Because that was clearly a recording just for that. That was not... How did they hear that? Where were people standing? The people are standing just in the foreground. So w the view we, we were looking at, if you think about you know, beyond the fountains on the, on the sidewalk, that's where the people line up. They line up along the sidewalk over the, the balustrades there and lean over. All around. All around. So you'd get it really loud. So you'd totally sort of, it blocks out traffic, it blocks out everything. Um, and 
I mentioned the senses before, you get the sprays of water, you get the music, you get the sound, but the most amazing thing is actually looking around at the crowd and seeing all these happy faces. Uh, and it's just the sort of the spectacle that does it. And you can say, you know, yes, it's there to attract people to go into the Bellagio, but the interesting thing is usually people come just to see that and then, you know, keep walking down the strip. It's pretty incredible. Okay. Now, truly understanding the significance of the word climax, during the song's finale, the mesmerising power of this dancing fountain reaches new heights as hundreds of columns of water erupt hundreds of metres into the sky. Sorry, feet, your feet here, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, it's true. Um, Synchronising their movements to the melodies that seduce them with their rhythms. Like Caesar's palace before it, at the Bellagio, old and new, past and present collide. Functioning like an architectural palimpsest, the result is the creation of a microcosmic space that plucks pre-existing cities from diverse spatio-temporal zones, while, like the picture palaces before them, simultaneously transforming these places into high-end architectural and technological wonders that seduce citizens with their effective power, one that can only be creations of the creation of our own time. Over the last decade, many new casinos have embraced the concept of microcosmic city as back backdrop to the playground for the people. Whereas the Bellagio miniaturises the Como Lake District and holiday villas of the aristocrats, the Ca uh, Caesar's Palace condenses, condenses ancient, renaissance and baroque Rome into one space. Other casinos have also created their own kind of micro-cities. Um, we've got New York at the New York, New York, Venice at the Venetian, Egypt um, in the Luxor, and Arabia at one stage, uh, which was the Desert Palace, the Aladdin Hotel, which now has become uh, Planet Hollywood, but it's still got um, themed uh, interiors of, of Arabia. In Learning from Las Vegas, which was published in 1972, Venturi and company welcomed the creation of this modern city that had abandoned connections with old-style European architecture and urban design. Yet since Las Vegas has succumbed to the era of conglomeration and entertainment culture, which now includes MGM owning, I think they own 30 if not around 40% of the strip, um, the properties in the strip, the old school architecture of an old world order has actually returned with re renewed vengeance, but with a different purpose and I think also through the lens, a lens that's very cinematic. Las Vegas represents in intensified form the ways in which our urban environments and ooh, Spooky. And leisure spaces. <laughs> I thought we were going for romantic mood lighting there. The, the Picture Palace um, conjured dream worlds in the name of the cinema and extended these worlds onto the sidewalk. The fantastic worlds projected onto the screen interiors exited the colossal buildings to infect the immediate cityscape. The new Las Vegas takes this further still by conjuring dream worlds from entertainment and leisure culture at large. On the strip in Las Vegas, the show no longer starts on the sidewalk, it now is the city itself. But despite this transformation, while revealing our era's um, distinct fascination with techno-spectacle and sensory encounters, like the picture palaces, it also interweaves experiences associated with high culture, with those of popular um, and entertainment media. At the Bellagio, 18th century aristocratic villa designs comfortably share their space with high-tech, obsessively surveyed gambling halls. Oh, I think. Anyway, I'll just show you that one for fun. What have I done? There we go. At Caesar's Palace, full-scale reproductions of Michelangelo's David and Giambologna's Rape of the Sabines are presented with no more or less pomp than, uh, and display than the animatronic characters who perform 
the climactic events that lead to the fall of ancient, the ancient city of Atlantis. And after that, you can also do the simulation ride. And Steve Wynn's collection of Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings are displayed to the viewer in a similar way to the high fashion and accessories that line the shopping arcades of the Wynn Hotel Casino. The bizarre collision of seemingly irreconcilable objects finds parallels in early traditions of display and collecting represented by the Wunderkama. Um, and here is an example of the 1599 print of um, the interior of Ferrante Imperato's Wunderkama in Naples. For an audience familiar to the linear, historical and thematic unravelling typical of current museum practices, the Wunderkammer, which is often seen as predecessor to the modern museum and gallery um, that came into being in the 19th century, would appear to be an indiscriminate accumulation of curiosities, uh, rarities and marvels, where works of art find a place next to precious stone, uh, unicorn horns, clocks, automata, antique statues and so on and so on. Yet as Westerhoff, Stafford, Bredekamp and others have argued, the Wunderkammer was structured according to its own rules, producing a system that made order out of chaos. Discussing the role of the Wunderkammer as a site of critical synthesis that provided a setting in which relationships were formed, Paula Finland turns to the painting entitled Europa of 1664, one of a series of four paintings that depicted the then four discovered continents um, of the 17th century. In this painting, Flemish artist Jan van Kessel plays, uh, places a collector in his Wunderkammer and in doing so forges a complex inter uh, system of interrelationships between objects within this representation of a Wunderkammer. Surrounding the collector is a di diverse array of objects. As Finland describes, objects of leisure such as backgammon boards, playing cards and tennis rackets in the foreground, objects of curiosity such as the mandrake and monster, the in insects arranged closely, to the, uh, arranged closely to the ceiling, and objects of power signified the quantity of armour, drums, the flag, the shields, removed from the context of battle, and the papal tiara and scepter. These are some of the objects that are, are present in there next to each other. This apparent mishmash of collectibles that appear to have no rational relationship to one another make little sense to a viewer accustomed to clearly demarcated categories under which museum objects are archived and displayed today. Yet for a pre-19th century learned viewer, each object in such a collection was imbued with deeper levels of meaning that also connected one object with its neighbour. Drawing on the writings of Umberto Eco, Westerhoff has suggested that Wunderkammers were filled with objects which were especially capable of documenting the pan-semiotic nature of things and which communicated the interrelationship between objects. In particular, this pan-semioticism constituted a fundamental part of the Baroque conception of the world and coincided with an emblematic understanding of the meaning of objects, the idea that an object sig signifies multiple ideas or concepts simultaneously. Revealing an association with Walter Benjamin's understanding of Baroque allegory, the pan-semiotic logic of the Wunderkammer requires that rather than studying collected items in isolation from everything else, a dialogic relationship is encouraged that understands it in relation to objects that surround it. So here you have uh, you know, objects that shift in meaning depending on what they're associated with around them. As Van Kessel's painting reveals, the allegorical figure of Rome sits next to the papal tiara and scepter. Um, which was specifically associated with the papacy of Alexander VII, during whose reign Van Kessel completed the painting. While the vista to the left shows the Castel San Angelo in the distance, 
This allegorical figure, however, simultaneously represents Europe and Italy as site of collection. Findlin explains that Van Kessel chose to focus upon Rome rather than Amsterdam, which was um, the, the city that uh, he was a court painter in, Van Kessel was a court painter in. And this attests to the power of its image as what she calls a Theatrum Mundi, the theatre of the world in the 17th century. Only Rome during this time could symbolise all of Europe in a glance. In summary then, the collector who represents Rome via reference to Alexander VII and the Castel San Angelo also represents Europe via Rome, which was the European centre for collecting during this time. Now, while Las Vegas isn't a literal manifestation of the earlier Wunderkammer, it does articulate its spaces in ways that rely on a Baroque pan-semiotic logic that depends on the associative powers of sight and other senses, I'd add. Let's imagine for a moment each casino complex is a giant Wunderkammer that accumulates and collects its objects according to the tastes and desires of its owners and visitors, a point I'll come back to. And Las Vegas itself is a giant Wunderkammer that collects each casino as one of its objects. So you've got this idea of the micro within the macro. Then it's possible to begin unravelling the more specific nature of the pan-semiotic meanings and relationships that are being communicated in the dynamic that occurs within and between buildings and objects on the strip. In the Bellagio, seeming opposites are situated in close proximity to one another. A visitor can tempt fate by feeding slot machines or trying their hand at blackjack and then walk out of the gambling hall and into the Bellagio Fine Art Gallery that's situated down the corridor. In its early days, when uh, Steve Wynn still owned the Bellagio, this permanent collection consisted of examples of the world's most precious artworks. Leaving behind the relentless, repetitive, yet mesmerising musical tones and visual feasts of the slot machines, it was possible to enter the almost painfully silent spaces of the gallery and wallow in the colourful delights created by the likes of Picasso, Monet, Renoir and Van Gogh. I actually nearly beat up a woman in the gallery once. She was being very annoying. That's another story. <laughs> Since the Bellagio was, uh, was purchased by the giant entertainment conglomerate MGM um, and Wynn built the Wynn further down the strip, the exhibitions have become temporary. Uh, more recently, they had one on uh, Liechtenstein, Warhol and, and, and um, others who were contemporary to them, pop, pop artists. And now they've got one on the artists and architects who are, whose work is being incorporated in the new city centre complex, which has taken over... Um, a huge part of the strip. Um, but they present no less a stark contrast to the sensory thrills that await around the corner in the gambling hall. And this collis collision of unaccustomed associations reaches even more bizarre heights in the Bellagio's Picasso restaurant, where you can allow yourself to taste and smell the delights conju conjured by the legendary Spanish chef Julian Serrano, while being surrounded by the paintings and drawings of that other legendary Spaniard, which decorate the walls of this restaurant that takes his name. Picasso's name now serves a dual function, Picasso the artist who created masterpiece artworks and Picasso the restaurant that now promises to feed its customers with masterpiece food creations. And this collapse um, and shift of, of meanings of objects and their association is reaching bizarre proportions in Vegas. You see it here on a small scale with artworks, you know, a restaurant taking over the role of a gallery space as well as being a restaurant. But the city centre is going to be combinations of entertainment complex, residential zones, um, casinos, and there'll be the MGM um, masterpiece collection owned by uh, one of the, the people who owns MGM, 
uh, will be distributed throughout the space, so the entire complex is going to be functioning like a gallery. The juxtaposition of signifiers functions in a, in a different way when we move beyond the individual casino microworld. On the strip, casinos compete on the level of spectacle as sign. In the case of the Bellagio, for example, the dancing fountains overpower the wonder of Paris, which is across the road, and its accumulation of Parisian emblems, which include the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre, because the, the, um, the height of the water actually just disguises it, uh, hides it, um, which finds its home across the, the strip. And standing in front of the Bellagio as the fountains perform their magical dances, the view to the right sees Caesar's Tower, which you see there, uh, dwarfed by the immense columns of water that rocket into the heavens, masking it from view. Now this spectacle, whether animatronic depiction of the fall of Atlantis at Caesars, the pirate ship battles at Treasure Island, or the erupting volcano at the Mirage, signifies the experiential power and consumer and entertainment offerings that each casino can provide its visitors. The city of Las Vegas visualises global, conglomerate-driven urban culture at its most intense point of obsession with the experience economy. Since the mob vacated Vegas, corporations like MGM Mirage, Mandalay, uh, Mandalay Resort Group, Wynn Resorts and Haraz have articulated new relationships between consumerism and the experiential. The old all-you-can-eat, cheap-as-chips mentality has been replaced by an emphasis on exclusivity that owes a great deal to elite tastes and part tradi past traditions of collecting cultures. And I think you see this, for example, in these imposing, grandiose retail entrances for Yves Saint Laurent, Chanel, Tiffany and Giorgio Armani at the Bellagio. But you also see it um, in the grandiose uh, um, entrances, such as the Trevi-inspired entrance to the forum shops, uh, designer shops at Caesars Palace, and that's the interior as you, you walk in, which redoes um, Raphael's, one of the Raphael Villa, the Villa Farnese, amongst other things. In an experience-based economy, goods and services are no longer enough. The new demand is for experiences. Spectacular architecture often blends with high retail design and entertainment media to create compelling event places that appear, appeal to visceral interests. In Making Leisure Work, Brian Lonsway explains that the architecture of the experience economy, which is typified by these kinds of urban destination spaces, is an architecture of persuasion. Yet unlike former persuasive architectures from imperial monuments to sacred gathering places, the goal of this new architecture is to compel consumption of a material artefact, not to honour the not honour um, of a royal or holy power. But I'd actually argue that instead the concept of royalty and holiness has actually shifted, not disappeared. The experience economy um, Las Vegas style is especially tied in traditions, into traditions of collecting culture that dominated prior to the 19th century. How are we doing on time? In her book On Longing, Susan Stewart states the following. In contrast to the souvenir, the collection offers examples rather than sample, metaphor rather than metonymy. The collection does not displace attention to the past, rather the past is at the service of the collection. For whereas the souvenir lends authenticity to the past, the past lends authenticity to the collection. The collection seeks a form of self-enclosure, which is possible because of its ahistoricism. The collection replaces history with classification, with order beyond the realm of temporality. In the collection, time is not something to be restored to an origin. Rather, all time is made simultaneous or synchronous within the collection's world. 
And Vegas of the last two decades operates precisely according to these rules of collection. The layering of multiple paths in architecture, painting, statues and so on, not only um, lends authenticity to the, the you know, casino event that adapts these spaces, but these monuments to new consumerism um, in true postmodern fashion generate an ahistoricism that can be seen in this kind of layering of history um, on itself through these intertextual, um, I guess, the intertextual layers that have a very much a pansemiotic logic where the one plays um, across the other. Ultimately, the Wunderkammer, like the Princely Gallery, encapsulated the tastes and interests of its collector. Remnants of the private collection of the aristocrat and learned scholar are still present in these palatial Wunderkammers, but the roles of Francesco Medici, Cassiano del Pozzo and John Soane are now being performed by new media conglomerates and moguls. Steve Wynne is especially a case in point. Almost single-handedly, he's initiated the remodelling of contemporary Vegas, especially since the um, 1980s. The Mirage, Treasure Island, the Bellagio, the Wynn, and the revamped old uh, Vegas Fremont Street into the Fremont Experience, in which he actually played a key role, trans transformed Las Vegas into what it is today. The new Vegas moved away from a, um, from a hotel casino that was secondary to its spectacular sign on the Strip, the models that Venturi celebrated, into a model that understands the entire space of the casino as, um, as the experiential spectacle. While famously collecting great masterpieces worth millions, including La Reve, which he famously stuck his elbow through, um, and building each of his casinos obsessively and meticulously according to his personal tastes and desires, Wynne got where he is today because he's also a savvy businessman. Heading Wynne Resorts Limited, he has a canny understanding of the service economy. And Wynne understands only too well that he's been able to cater to his tastes because of his ability to speak to the consumer um, and their uh, entertainment and leisure desires of the people who got him to the place he is today. So he, in a sense, performs like this kind of modern-day Medici. In the late 20th, early 21st century Vegas, however, the role of a private collector has also shifted or expanded to encompass the public collector. So we can also then perceive the visitors of Las Vegas as another version of the modern-day Medici. Everyone is a modern-day Medici in, in Vegas. In embracing such a move, however, the pansemiotic logic that associates Wynne's accumulated masterpieces, elite retail stores and palatial abodes with the individual and by extension corporate power needs to also shift to accommodate the people Wynne and Wynne Resorts service. The private collection has merged with the public sphere in radically remediated ways that are more in tune with contemporary culture. And we, in a very real sense, create our own collection, one based on consumer resources and entertainment experiences that are laid out before us on the strip and in casinos. Again, this is integral to the spatial and architectural configurations that are typical of the experience economy. The spatio-temporal production of sites of experience correlates to brands or, or corporation, um, corporate affiliation and repeat consumerism. But leaving aside um, the ideological implications, what I find most fascinating about these spaces is the lessons they've learned from media fictions and spectacles. Las Vegas is a media city, a cinematic city, and in this space experiences are staged, performed and executed according to scripts that invite multi-sensory and cognitive engagements from the actors, the Vegas visitors. But in Las Vegas, the theatricality of stage-based entertainment has migrated to more 
um, social, the social interactive realms, and in that sense, the boundaries of the theme park have totally collapsed. I'm nearly there. This very filmic approach to urban design is typified by architects and urban designers like John Jurd, who has worked very closely with Steve Wynn in a number of the casino complexes, and Jurd's also responsible for the development of Universal City Walk in um, LA and numerous other sites around the world, um, who very much approaches uh, planning of an urban space like scripting a film. He calls them scripted spaces. Um, the consumer, spectator, party animal becomes the main protagonist in their own film and it's the object of the architect to provide the set. That was Fremont Street, by the way. Um, just go back. Uh, what happens there is on the hour, um, every hour in the evening, uh, this um, amazing digital display of uh, a whole variety of experiences and um, Christmas time, it's Christmas themes and... Um, the, recently there was a 60s theme and it sort of dances and displays across four blocks of Fremont. The connection with the cinema is in fact not just a metaphor. The constructions that have become iconic on the strip were constructed by architectural firms that now also hire and include um, in their company special effects teams. Um, in, in order to complete the narrative experience for the 21st century consumer. The sense of the unique and individualised experience comes from the choices that we make when navigating the spaces presented to us. Now, these may, this may include going to Fremont Street to watch the celestial sky above us perform um, its digital wonders or journeying to the Mirage to see the man-made volcano erupt before us on the hour, every hour at nightfall or gambling at the Venetian and then stopping off at Jimmy, Shoe, Jimmy Choo's to buy that special pair of shoes you simply have to have, or going to Sephora uh, to get that special wrinkle cream that promises to wipe away, magically wipe away all those wrinkles. Um, and the consumer experience as form of collect, um, collection continues when you go to Bouchon, the restaurant owned, owned by world famous chef Thomas Keller to collect a fine meal. The people as consumer are the new royalty. The Bellagio's coat of arms, I think, makes this point explicit. The Bellagio insignia, which you see down the bottom on the right, collapses the shield design of the municipal coat of arms from the Comune di Bellagio, the one in the red and yellow, uh, which is the symbol of community of the people of Bellagio, with that of the Barberini family, and in particular Pope, Barber Pope Urban VIII, which was on the facade of the Palazzo Barberini in Rome. In a sense, history has travelled a full loop back in time. With the rise of mass culture, the modern museum and gallery appropriated aristocratic tropes, symbols and architectural styles to create reformulated palaces as museums for the people often transforming royal residences like the Louvre into public spaces that collected artworks that had previously been the domain of the upper classes. Las Vegas, on the other hand, collects iconic sites that return to a time past. Corporations facilitate the construction of new palaces that address the people, not as part of faceless mass, but as one of many unique individuals who fashion their own tastes and experiences according to a vast array of choices, this, the scripts that Vegas lays out for them. In 1655, Queen Christina of Sweden, who'd recently converted to Roman Catholicism, visited Rome. To celebrate her arrival and her conversion, the Porta del Popolo was constructed by Benini as her official entranceway into the city. 
deliberately modelled on theatrical backdrops made famous by Palladio. On entering the Piazza del Popolo via the Porta, the Queen Christina was transformed into a performer in a theatrical production that was the city of Rome. Like the technological spectacles that can be experienced in Vegas, many of the grand entrances, corridors, sculptural arrangements that greet the visitor in Vegas deliberately mimic these royal arrivals in the process acknowledging themselves as part of a grand theatrical performance that services the demands of individual consumers. When individuals buy an experience, they buy a staged event that promises to engage them in a personal way. For collectors like Samuel Kischelberg um, and Athanasius Kircher, the Wunderkammer performed an important function as theatre of the world, in which the collector could display discoveries, natural and artificial, from newly discovered worlds alongside European creations. As such, the Wunderkammer became a theatre that performed the world in miniature form, according to the taste of the collector. In his influential um, writings on, on organisation of collections, Kischelberg argued that the Wunderkammer should be made in the form of the marvels of the world. He drew uh, in particular on Giulio Cam um, Camillo's Theatre Mundi, Theatre of the World, uh, a study that um, had a dramatic influence on writers during this period, which was a study concerned with the reconstruction of the workings of memory. What Camillo famously constructed was a theatre that used visual imagery as aids to memory recall. Kischelberg referenced this theatre of memory as a museum um, has consequences for the pansemiotic conception of collections as a whole in that both the collection and the theatre of memory were supposed to mirror the innermost structure of the world. The Wunderkammer as theatre of the world underwent another pansemiotic shift during the 17th century when the world itself was conceived as theatre, one collected and put on by the great creator. And this idea I think was famously played out in the plays of... Um, Shakespeare and Calderon. The boundaries between theatre and life collapsed and the world itself was understood as an enormous Wunderkammer that housed the ultimate collector's favourite objects. One of the most significant um, collections we make as visitors in Las Vegas is to collect experiences for our own theatres of memory. In Vegas, we're not just consumers who collect retail products, we also fill our own memory palaces with experience, experiences we choose to generate as we navigate the immense spaces before us. In the Venetian, for example, whoop, um, this may include experiencing the mini-scale reproductions of St. Mark's Square or sections of the interior and ex exterior of the Palazzo Ducale or Cardoro, taking in the reconstructed lagoons complete with gondolas and singing gondoliers, visiting the recently closed Guggenheim, which was constructed uh, by Rem Koolhaas, or marvelling at the meticulous reproductions of the city of Venice, um, and also the paintings, masterpieces by Veronese, Titian and Tiepolo that decorate the ceilings and walls within. To paraphrase Shakespeare, in Las Vegas, the world literally is our stage. And that's the end. <laughs> Sorry, it went over. I ask you to use the mic, it's not for amplification, but for recording. Shankar. Um, I should ask, sorry? I'm Shankar Raman, I in literature. I have a question about the, this connection between pan and experience. Um, 
It seems to me one of the distinct things about the window camera is precisely that you make individual connections, individual objects get connected up in interesting ways. Um, so the idea of the conceit and the, and the making of the connection becomes important itself. Um, the problem seems to be that in at least the way you describe the, 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 the Vegas stuff, there's a sense in which uh, there is pan-semiosis, but it's always a semiosis of the same thing, I experience as such. Mm. So that there's a way by which it's not, so that the whole idea of individuation seems to be slightly problematic. I mean, you're claiming that, you're, that you take this as a, as a personal space, but in a sense, what's always being reproduced is actually the individual experience as the structure of it is, in fact, identical. It's, it's experience being produced as almost like an empty slot that could be filled in any partic particular way. So, th so th I'm having a bit of difficulty kind of bringing those two things together, if you see what I'm, sa I'm not saying. I'm sure what you're getting at. Um, if the claim is that, that the, the modern appropriation of Baroque experience is in fact um, the way by which experience gets, is uh, by being a consumer king is in fact to, to create personal experiences all the yeah, way through, yeah. throughout. Uh, what seems to me is also needs to be accounted for is this way in which that, that experience is ultimately, uh, what we uh, create is in fact the identical structure of experience. That experience is always simply an X that has to be filled. What's being produces not individuated experience in, in, in one sense, but simply experience as such. Anything is experience. And that, and that's what and, uh, and that actually is links us to the, what would be more uh, the other part, which is, of course, the entire structure of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just wondering about the, way, the fact that pan-semiosis, in fact, semiosis is always only one thing, mm. experience itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what the experience economy sells. It's that illusion of individuated experience um, that, that accompanies the you know, the uh, consumer experience or entertainment experience or whatever experience you're out, out there seeking. Um, and it's about sort of generating these kind of journeys that offer sensory responses on various levels that give the impression that you have an individuated experience. Yeah, I mean, it's very different to earlier periods, it's not a duplication. Hi, Noel Jackson, Literature. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you see the experience economy changing, if, you, if indeed you see it changing in this new, the new Steve Wynn Vegas where th there's a move away from the themed resorts and where the production of fantasy does not involve forms of ethnographic or mythological transport to Paris or to Venice or to ancient Egypt, but, but rather uh, to my mind, at least, the inhabitation of certain celebrity lifestyles. Mm. So you go to the Palms if you want to live as Britney Spears or whoever the person of moment happens yeah. to be. Or you, or you go to win and pay 600 a night if you want to live like the 21st century Rat Pack. So wh where, where that, that fantasy, I, I mean, uh, where you're, you're, what, what he seems to be producing is another path to the out-of-body experience, where mm -hmm. what's being produced are not the spaces to take you there, but channels for identification, so you can imagine yourself in the place of these different Yeah, people. I agree. I think there is a shift, um, both with the win and the extension to the, the current win, but also with the new city centre. The architecture looks really different. It's that, that sort of new emphasis on real sleek, modern style, sort of high modern, almost. Um, that speaks of a different kind of elitism. And I think it is about sort of celebrity culture and what money can buy you. And, but the elitist kind of aspect is still there. It's just found a different, a different um, way of expressing itself, I guess. But 
Yeah. And in a funny way, it echoes actually what happens in the 20s with the palaces, which start as this kind of you know, homage to the taste of the past mm -hmm. at a moment of both democratization and uh, sacralization. And there's a fierce battle between people reading this as the worst possible taste, but the masses going yeah. in droves. And it's reconciled, indeed, by embracing a kind of celebrity lifestyle. You can live like Doug Fairbanks, and that becomes the, the, the successor to that palace period. And it's sort of the same now, except the critique doesn't seem to be the same critique. No, but what's interesting about the kind of architecture that's appearing now is it's appearing in our everyday city spaces. I'm Jeff Long from the uh, Gambit Game Lab. Um, have you thought at all about how uh, recent technology like augmented reality systems and uh, geotagging uh, enables kind of the democratization of this kind of cataloging of the world um, and also reinterpretation of it so the people like us can you know, go around, collect the things that we like, um, tag them, either post them on websites or using new tech um, like AR on mobile phones um, to change how other people are seeing things and then construct those kinds of uh, pan-semiotic relationships for others. I'm looking at that a little bit in the, the curatorial culture book um, and looking the, at the way uh, archiving, the whole idea of archiving has tr totally transformed and you know, the way we can you know, carry our archives of our you know, music collections and image, image banks around with us. And I'll also be looking at, at a lot of the, the um, social uh, networking sites as well and the, the tagging things, I think. I hadn't thought about that. It's a really good point, actually. Yeah. Uh, since I'm back in the corner, can I ask two questions and then I'll pass the mic away. <laughs> The first one is a very particular one. I, I didn't get this. I, most of your slides were just so mesmerizing, and I wanted to look at them longer. Um, I didn't get the, the point about the three coats of arms. I didn't see how the, the Bellagio was a confluence or a synthesis of the other two. The Barberini's of the three Bs is their crest, right? The one on the left. Yeah. But what, what's going on in the, the Bellagio that somehow brings those two together? It's, it's just the sort of the, the, it's like classic iconic um, imagery of that kind of insignia. The, you know, the swirling, um, the B for the, the Bellagio and the, the commune just coming together. All right, so it's not so a it's specific. It's like typology more than anything right. else I was getting at. Okay. Yeah, the not direct allusion, no, 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 no. The broader question is uh, a scholar who's a Baroque music specialist, we have two at MIT, which is very unusual in our section, but we have two leading Baroque music scholars. One of them years ago wrote a textbook about Baroque music in which he discussed the general aesthetic of Baroque as being a combination of uh, pomp and pathos. I think this is an old phrase. Um, all I see here is pomp. I don't see and the the another way. happens when you lose an, your money. Another way, to, <laughs> another way to look at it is the idea that in Baroque opera, for example, it's not just the spectacle, which it can be overwhelming through the sage design, through the, the sheer uh, grandiosity of the music. It's also the intensely poignant personal drama, which is, of course, driven through in Shakespeare's soliloquies, in paintings that capture the most stunning moments of pain or pathos mm. or love. Where is that in all of this? This seems like half of the Baroque, the one half without the necessary complementary act. I'm not saying it's a duplication of that era. I'm saying it's, a, it's similar. It's got similar traits, but it's a redefinition of the Baroque for our own times. So the pathos um, and the, the narrative immersion, all of that is still there. It's, it's just distributed and articulated in very different ways. Uh, Pete Donaldson, Literature. Uh, just a stunning paper. Uh, but um, I, I thought there was a, a problem or an apparent 
contradiction uh, because one part of the argument uh, is about ahistoricization, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the uprooting of these um, images and styles from history. Uh, but your demonstration of their debt to uh, the Baroque in a particular century was so thorough that it made me wonder whether in fact uh, they were eclectic or whether they really did dehistoricize. I was struck by how rich an experience of something like the Baroque uh, one could have in those spaces and how specific the influences were. So, you know, culminating in that uh, uh, wonderful um, discussion that you conducted around uh, the entrance of Qu Queen Christina into the Piazza del Popolo. So there's all these highly specific neo-Baroque. Mm. So I came away from it thinking, well, there's a theory that it's supposed to be cut off from history, but when I look at the examples, it's not cut off from history. No, no. It's very, very deeply and specifically in debt to the Baroque. So do you see this as a contradiction or would you modify I the guess I think you've got, yeah, you've got a point there. I think rather than a historical, I think it's more about that layering of history that I mentioned. It's about histories coexisting with one another um, rather than you know wiping out or collapsing history in the, the sort of Jamison idea of the, the term. But yeah, you're right. Hi, Scott Osterwild, Research Director in CMS. Um, so when I was in Vegas, I was struck. I don't think I've ever seen people looking so much like they were on display as they are when they walk down the strip. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about the effect, the way in which uh, everyone becomes a performer yeah. in Vegas, um, how that relates to, to what I think that discusses. ties in very much to that whole idea of the, the scripted space. Um, the spectacle sort of invites the person navigating the space to you take on different kind of emotional responses to what they're exposed to, um, and also to the people they're interacting with. I mean, that's one of the key features for sure. Um, just, uh, one of the most amazing things I find with the, the city-themed places is the way they do strangely recall the, their origin points. Um, and I, I remember going to the Venetian when it had just opened, and there were groups of Italians clearly there straight from Italy, talking Italian, and I've been to Venice, and suddenly I did this whole, hang on, where, where am I, where am I? And I realised, no, this is too clean, it can't be Venice. Um, but, you do, but, but you get a lot of people from um, Italy, from Paris, coming to these places to see these versions of their own countries, and it's just really bizarre. How do you know they're not actually actors? In <laughs> Maybe they are. <laughs> the, the best is the gondoliers, who are actually trained opera singers. My name is Madeline. I'm a graduate student in CMS. Um, and I have two, I have a, a question and then a sort of question observation. Um, in your comparison to the Wunder Common, it seemed to me a, a difference between the, the collections that are happening here versus the collections that were happening in those spaces was that it actually was like the person's, the alligator's eyeball. And, and in this case, it is a, a replica. Yep. In fact, it's a very different kind of collection. One is specifically valued for its authenticity and the other for its surface. It's some, something else. Um, and so I was, so I, I was going to say some alacrity, then I was going to say, well, am I saying the right <laughs> word? I don't know. I haven't read it, so. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then the sort of, 
relates to something we recently in Williams' class read, Neil Harris's Operational Aesthetic. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the work, but yeah, I don't want to um, go through. <laughs> and I have a question about the sort of underbelly of fantasy that is you know it's fake. Mm -hmm. And that you were referencing all of these experiences as, well, you're in Venice or you're in this place, and obviously you're not. And so how does this sort of phenomenological experience of saying, well, this is not real, but this is real, how does that play into I your... I think that's part of the pleasure, knowing that it's fake. And it, again, I think it's, it's tied into the, the sort of wondrous aspects of you know, humans being capable of creating these kinds of spaces um, and us you know, becoming involved in them. But just a, a point on the earlier collections, they weren't all authentic. <coughs> they, the um, 17th and 16th centuries, the collectors were notorious for uh, creating fake um, objects and things like um, distorted beings that they, you know, monsters that they found in countries they discovered in in um, other continents and things like that. So they they also were duplicitous. But did people go there thinking that they were no, real? That's, that's yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were passed off as real. That sort of thing. Um, and actually, uh, Foucault's notion of heterotopia is an interesting one. In the, in Regarding the sort of temporal breakup, the temporal flattening of all yeah, this, uh, actually yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to make a quick comment, maybe have you respond to what Madeline's saying, which I think is really an important point. What, my, uh, <laughs> I've only been to Las Vegas once. Some some of the people here were maybe were with me. I was there on an expedition led by Henry Jenkins. We were giving lectures to <laughs> electronic arts about narrative, and while we were there, we sort of saw Las Vegas. And uh, it was an interesting conf confluence of experiences because in some ways the electronic arts people felt that Las Vegas was trivial and sort of not very imaginative. And it seemed to me that they actually could take a lot of inspiration from it. But, 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 but I wanted to reinforce something that Madeline was implying, uh, which is that part of the charm of being there is exactly that they're miniatures. Mm -hmm. In other words, all, you know, you, you, grow up, you, know, you, you grow up in New York and there, there's the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a, it's a little <laughs> tiny version of the Brooklyn Bridge like the kind that you might want in your bedroom. And uh, so I think that, I think a key part of the experience is your awareness that these are uh, miniaturized replicas. And part of the pleasure of even looking at them much less sort of walking through them or experiencing them, has to do with their, 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 their sort of less than massive scale, that their, their, their attraction has to do with your constant awareness that they are factitious, that the pleasure comes from that. It mm. is not, you don't feel that you're experiencing Venice. The, the point is you're, that, that it's, a, that it's a, an, an incredibly brilliant make-believe Venice. That it, I mean, I, my, and my own sense is that you, that, that, that these pleasures, are, I think, are incredibly intense, and I think that they come—they come out of something much more universal that I think you've alluded to, which has to do with the way in which we're always fascinated. And again, this links up to games, the way in which we're fascinated by entering into a universe that seems a complete world. Mm. But the interesting thing about Las Vegas is that it presents us with a dozen or 15 complete where we can get yeah. into Egypt and then we can walk around the corner and go on the Brooklyn Bridge and then we can go to Venice. And I, I think the fact that there are, it, it, it reminds me of the kind of pleasure that children take when they set train sets up and they put little houses around the train. And it seems to me that, that this is an, uh, uh, a t uh, an aesthetic uh, question that it really hasn't been deeply explored enough, deeply explored enough and that, and that it's seems to me entirely relevant to the kinds of things Well, it's explored only to be dismissed. Where you, you think about uh, ideological critique or, um, 
lot of the situationist stuff or postmodern criticism of, of these kinds of spaces that somehow will confuse them with reality. And that could never yes, happen. Anyone sure, who's been right. to Vegas knows that you can't right. confuse the Venetian with Venice. Um, and it's about the, the playfulness of, course, of the thing. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, Marlene Manoff from the libraries. I guess um, one of the things that strikes me about uh, Las Vegas is that all these, all these places are safe. They're indoors. It never gets dark. It never gets cold. The sun doesn't get in your eyes. There are no pigeons. There are no bugs. You can sit outside on this vast plaza and eat lunch and not have to deal with any of the things that might bother you if you were really um, on a plaza in Italy. So I think that that safety. Well, Bring no, in the gypsies. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, yeah, there's no death in this. <laughs> well, I reckon there is death, but we just don't see it. Well, yeah, I mean, um, just build, building on that, um, there was actually uh, one game developer, Clint Hawking, who gave a talk at the Gambit Lab a couple of uh, weeks back and po point, using Las Vegas as an example because of its, you know it's fake, maybe everything that happens in that world is fake, including the money, including the money that you're losing. Um, and and <laughs> that's, that's the lesson, actually. It's a cautionary lesson from, uh, that the game industry is taking away from Las Vegas. Mm. Uh, not necessarily a, do we have to be exactly like that, but maybe that's a road we don't want to go down. Um, that's, that was, mm. that's, I, I don't really have a question. Thank you. It's very interesting. And I, all, all I wanted to ask was, uh, so one of the things we're, we're trying to think about through this series is, is sort of where is media studies going and what are sort of interesting things that are happening in media studies. And I wonder if you could relate this, you know, to how you see new things happening in media studies or how you see your work pulling media studies in certain directions. I, I think media, the media has just sort of become an integral part of our everyday lives, sort of woven into the architecture, into our everyday environment in far more immediate ways than, than we've traditionally been used to. Um, and if you think about it, we're carrying media around with us all the time. Um, walking down a street or experiencing even something as excessive as, as Vegas, um, you know, it constructs itself like a film set. It's, it's a, you know experience in that sense. But even um, a lot of the urban destination places, you think about media screens that infiltrate those spaces as well as you know, they're embedded in the architecture itself. Um, and we just take it for granted now as part of our everyday environment. I think it's far more sort of invasive, immersive, whatever you'd want to call it. So Nick Monfort from Writing. Um, first, I just wanted to offer, in response again to Madeline's question, you know, why, why is it so fake? Why, um, uh, Baudrillard's answer, which is to make the rest of the United States look real by comparison. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but past that, I actually had a very, a, a very, uh, simplistic and almost practical question, which is, you know, you mentioned Venturi Scott Brown's uh, concept of the decorated shed, the mm. expensive electric sign, and how that's clearly nice observation about the late 1960s strip, but that's clearly not what's going on with these palaces pouring mm. out into the streets. But one of the transformations that uh, has been hinted on by Scott's question about people walking down the strip and, and being on display, your mention of people going by the Bellagio, looking at the fountains, and then walking on, is that uh, the other big transformation has been from automotive promenade to uh, pedestrian space where people yeah. walk around. And so I was just wondering if you'd address that explicitly and how that shift from, uh, from the automobile to walking has, uh, has affected uh, things in Vegas and if it intersects at all with ideas about the Baroque that you've been discussing. I haven't thought about it from the perspective of the, the Baroque, but um, 
I mean, in terms of becoming a, a, a space for, for people to walk in, that's definitely a sort of, it's not necessarily a Baroque experience, but it's you know, early cultural kind of experience, the whole idea of the plaza and, and so on. And John Jurd is, is directly turns to a lot of this sort of Italian architecture and the creation of the piazza as a kind of communal space. Um, What's interesting about the strip, though, I mean, cars tend to avoid it now, and for Venturi and, and um, the others, that was the key thing. You know, you saw the sign as you were going down the strip, um, whereas now it's on those sort of off-roads and on the freeway systems that have been have been uh, created. But I haven't, you haven't given it much thought, actually. Wynne Kelly and literature. Uh, I may be the only person in the room who has a close relative in the entertainment industry in <laughs> Las Vegas, so I've seen the backstage of some of those palaces, and it's mm. pretty amazing. A um, couple of points. One is about the imperial um, uh, aesthetic as part of the Baroque and all, all of these empires being represented here. Uh, I was really struck by the dancing fountains uh, from a couple of points of view. One is that it's a, it's a fantasy of environmental. Um, it's not just urban, it's, it's environmental. And it, with the collapse of Dubai this week, mm -hmm. I think we have a wonderful example of a fantasy that's just unsustainable environmentally. Um, so I'm curious about uh, the, sort of the other side of that aesthetic. The delight of the fountains is balanced against the fact that, that everybody in Vegas is trying to figure out how to use less water. Uh, and then the other aspect from the entertainment view is very interesting in relation to what you're saying about how the spectators have become entertainers because this close relative was a former topless dancer uh, and has seen the old right. theaters <laughs> disappear and the only thing that's left is Cirque du Soleil. Um, so the old uh, image of the sort of salacious entertainment of Las Vegas has been completely sanitized for something that's family entertainment. Um, it's made a comeback. The family entertainment thing stopped in the early 90s. So what's, what is, what's happening with entertainment now? Because really the artists... Are back. The strippers are back, <laughs> big time. I thought that the Boobs artists are big in Vegas again. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time to go back. <laughs> Um, James Bazard, Literature. Um, one to follow up on Nick's question about the shift from cars to pedestrians. I've got to think that um, that's an important part of increasing the sense of immersion in the scene, right? And the sense of sort of exposure and vulnerability. Um, we're talking about how safe it is, but you know, when you're in your car, you're really not, in, you're not involved in the same way as when you're moving around on foot. Um, my real question is about um, the invocation of the concept of scripts uh, over and over and the sense that people are invited to choose among scripts and individualize the experience that way. And it kind of loops back to what Shankar began us with. Um, a thousand scripts are still scripts, right? And you've given us a really interesting analysis of what sort of the aesthetic is offering. It would be really interesting to know what people are actually doing with it. Right? And so I can imagine a sort of, um, I don't know, sociological complement to the kind of approach you take that would actually involve like, so what do you do with these scripts? How do you break them down, reform them? How, where's the agency of the people mm -hmm. engaging with this stuff? Um, what the phenomenology of any experience as such? Pardon? What the phenomenology of any experience would be? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if there is, is there, is there such work going on? Not, not really. And I think, I mean, one of the problems was the theory that tends to just immediately dismiss. This is spectacle, this is capitalism, this is bad. And I think, you know, that's, that's what I've resisted and, you know, tried to unpack it a bit more. So, you know, the next step will be that kind of analysis. And I think it's really important. Okay, okay we're going to do one more. Um, 
Yeah, this is just to, to follow up on Wynne's comment about the imperial. And, and this is really what struck me most about, about all of the imagery and all about um, the idea of having the world being able to, to experience and not just experience, but to have, to own the world within a single space, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is something that, that you know, goes back to the, the, the world expositions of the yeah. 19th and early 20th century, as well as the kind of um, uh, elite interiors that, that American, um, American uh, particularly American women um, of the elites of New York and Chicago, et cetera, were creating within um, palatial homes in the U.S. where there would be one room that would be the Egypt room and another room that would be the Paris yeah. room, et cetera. Um, so I, I, I just wanted to, uh, or wondered if you could comment on on what people you know, are being um, inscripted, you know, what people are, are being... Um, Are, are being made to, or, or are being given, you know, beyond just experience, right? Um, are people being scripted into um, empire, mm. for example? Is this part of what the, the pleasure is or, or the experience is? So the question is, what can subjects produce in some sense by the... I tend to resist wanting to come up with a, a singular answer to, you know, such and such a subject is produced as a result of this kind of experience. I think that's a real, a real problem with um, that kind of thinking. But I, I think what you get, the, the world expositions, I think, were an important aspect of this. And I wonder if a lot of it had, because it happened in Australia as well, this, that kind of thing, um, this sense of, it, not only of, it's not a really of, of otherness, um, it's more a sense of, bringing European and older cultures into these new new cultures and somehow that became this kind of taste thing or you know became a trend um, that has carried on over a century of, of you know past the ex the highlight the high peak of the ex exposition because um, expos used to you know create these kind of cultural spaces that represented different parts of Europe yeah that's a good question I haven't Give it a bit of a thought. Maybe an interesting shift from the colonial, neo-colonial mm. to the cosmopolitan or something. But anyway, <laughs> terrific talk. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank Appreciate you. having me here.